this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampat 2023 is a busy year for state elections with a total of 9 polls scheduled to take place we are in march now when three of those assembly polls have concluded in all three tripura nagaland and meghalaya the incumbents have been returned to power the bjp was voted back in tripura although with a reduced vote share while in nagaland the alliance of the national democratic progressive party and the bjp are back in power in meghalaya interestingly in its election campaign the bjp had branded the government of the konrad sangma led national peoples party as the most corrupt state government in the country but after the polls where it won 2 out of 60 seats the bjp has chosen to extend support to the npp so what are the implications of these election results for the northeast with barely 13 months to go for the 2024 general elections are there any lessons to be drawn for instance with regard to opposition unity we explore these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us Rahul Karmakar who covers the northeast for the Hindu Rahul thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me so rahul let's start with tripura here the bjp had stormed to power in the state in 2018 ending 25 years of uh, left rule and this time it's back again although with a lesser number of seats slightly and a reduced vote share as well so how do you read the results in this state I and mean, why did specifically i mean i'm interested to know that left congress alliance which was talked up a lot before the polls why did it fail to deliver see the left front in tripura i think the left front failed to deliver more than the congress it went from 0 to 3 seats and increased its vote share by almost 7% but their collective failure you know can be attributed to several factors prime among them was the bjp's master stroke in replacing the controversial biplop kumar deb with manik saha a soft spoken dental surgeon so 9 months ahead of the polls you know to improve the party's image there was also a flurry of development activities towards the end of the bjp's tenure with a monthly social allowance for the bpl people doubled from rupees 1000 to 2000 and some 1.5 pmay houses sanctioned there was also the perception that bjp did better than uh, previous governments in maintaining law and order despite sporadic incidents gradual erosion of the cpim's grassroots cadre base has also been a factor finally the tipra motha's decision to contest 22 seats beyond its comfort zone you know tripura is divided into 40 and 20 seats 40 seats in the non tribal basically the non tribal areas and 20 in the tribal areas so the tipra motha was seen as primarily a party catering to tribal aspirations so it decided to contest 22 seats beyond its comfort zone of 20 constituencies straddling a tribal council so i think that played a part in if we if we go into an, a deeper analysis in 16 of the 14 largely non tribal seats the tipra motha candidates got more votes than the margin of victory of the bjp candidates over their nearest cpim and congress rivals so without the tipra motha i think the bjp could have found it very tough to win the, in these 16 seats Right. I mean, that's a very interesting point you are making, uh, Rahul. That without the Tipra Motha, the BJP would have sort of fared uh, worse than what it did. So, how do you explain the rise of this Tipra Motha party? Now, it is, I think, the main opposition in the new assembly. Was it expected to perform so well? 
I think it was because it, it got 13 seats because, well, it contested 42 seats in all, but then its strong point was always this 20 seats. So 13 seats out of 20 was not a bad score. Uh, you know, a section of the tribal people in Tripura, you know, Tripura was once a kingdom that extended to present-day Bangladesh. Uh, and the, the king was a, he belonged to the you know, Tripura, uh, one of the tribes in Tripura. So the, the tribal people have for long harbored resentment about losing the political clout to the non-tribal people, specifically, specifically the Bengalis after 1947. So a lower rate of growth in the tribal areas comprising 70% of the state's uh, geographical area compared to the non-tribal area has also been a sore point. The Tripura Motha filled the space of tribal parties such as the Tripura Upajati Juba Samiti that was formed in the 1970s or 60s, I am not very sure, and the Indigenous National Front of Tripura, which failed to make the most of such sentiments. The dreams of greater Tripura land, although quite nebulous, seem to have worked for the Tripura Motha. After sweeping the, you know, because the Tripura Motha was formed in 2019, I think, uh, loosely, and then it became a stronger party two years later. So, after sweeping the Tripura Tribal Areas Autonomous District Council election in two, 2021, the Tripura Mutha was expected to do well, particularly because of his charismatic leader, Pradyot Bikram Manikyabdev Burma, who the tribal people refer to as Bubagra, meaning king in the Kok Borok language. So, it was expected to do well. Right. That, that's actually uh, quite interesting. Maybe we'll come back to it uh, later in the discussion if we have time. So let's move on to the next question. You also made a point earlier about uh, this great tactical move by the BJP to sort of change uh, the chief minister. So like, what was the rationale behind it? Was, the, was Biplab not performing well? Was there a lot of uh, they were the fearing anti-incumbency sort of could sort of sabotage their strategy. Yes, there was certain some certain kind of fear among the, within the BJP because you know the Biplav Dev was uh, you know prone to controversies and he was also seen as quite intolerant of criticisms. So the party you know could have replaced I think could have replaced him earlier, but then doing so in the fifth year of in power I think points to a tactical move with an eye on the polls. Okay, so what is his what is his status right now in in the, in the in the scheme of things? So he is an MP now from Tripura, and I don't think he plays much of a role in the state now. He's not going to be a minister or anything. I don't think so. Okay, now moving to the other states uh, which went to the polls in this round, we know that Nagaland and Meghalaya are Christian-dominated states. Uh, they've got a high percentage of the population, and before the elections. Uh, we remember that some church leaders had a meeting in Guwahati and they issued a statement calling on the people to listen, within courts, to listen to their conscience and vote for people, for candidates, for parties which care for their community. And this statement came in the backdrop of attacks on churches in other parts of the country. So do you think this call had any impact on how people voted in the elections? Not really, because, you know, the churches have made calls earlier also. In, although the BJP was not in power most of the time. But this is not the first time that the BJP is contesting elections in the Christian-dominated Nagaland or Meghalaya. Because in earlier also earlier years, earlier um, elections, nobody made religion or BJP's Hindutva an issue in Nagaland particularly because 
the people there have invariably gone by candidates and on the party or a coalition ruling at the center and not the ideology of the party. Ideology has hardly ever mattered so in Nagaland. The BJP basically avoided religion in both states and gave a reaction in Meghalaya when prompted on an Assam charge survey later. You must have heard about an uh, Assam government. Uh, Assam, I think last year it happened. The Assam uh, police department, you know, special branch, had a purportedly issued a letter ask, seeking the survey of all the churches in Assam. So that became an issue in uh, Meghalaya to some extent, not totally. Well, the BJP's you know, religious bent did not get much traction in Nagaland. Allies and rivals did attack it as, a, as an anti-Christian party, particularly the NPP. The outcome was quite apparent. You know, the BJP matched his seat. You know, I, I, I don't think it's a, the right word I have used. I think the outcome, you know, shows how, whether it's worked or not. You know, the BJP matched his seat count of 12 in 2018 and increased his vote share by some 4% in Nagaland. The party won two seats in Meghalaya this time. The same as in 2018, but his vote share dipped just marginally. It's not by much. So I don't think in the long, in the, in the greater scheme of things, it worked. Right. No, uh, you made uh, uh, a very interesting point just now when you said that uh, neither ideology nor religion were in the scheme of things when it came to uh, campaigning for the BJP. And I just want to quote here what the Meghalaya BJP president said, you know, before the elections. He said, I quote, there is no restriction on beef eating in Meghalaya. I eat beef too. In Meghalaya, everybody eats beef. No one can stop it. There is no such rule in India also. In Meghalaya, we have a slaughterhouse. Everybody takes a cow or a pig and brings brings it to the market. Now, this is the BJP state unit president speaking, you know. And, you know, it, it, does this really mean, I, mean, I can't imagine any BJP state unit outside the Northeast saying something like that, not even in the South, maybe. So, was is the BJP's campaign in Meghalaya and Nagaland very different from what its line is in the rest of the country? Is it like Hindutva Mukt, if one may use it? Uh, term. Uh, but, uh, you know, BGP has always been soft in this respect, you know, particularly the knowledge. Is it softer or is it zero here? Much softer. It's, I think it's close to zero when it comes to, you know, issues of beef and other, apart from Assam, because Assam already, if, even if you go by all these, uh, you know, steps taken by the Assam government, these are more oriented to the uh, Muslim areas, mostly, in Assam, because which has a quite high percentage of Muslims, around 34%. But uh, in the hill states, I think BJP has never bothered much because it, it has always tried to downplay its Hindutva character, particularly in Meghalaya. The fo and the focus has, has been more on development. You know, the BJP's main card was that it, mo most of the leaders, central leaders who went there, never ever countered uh, the uh, Meghalaya BJP chief about what he said. Now, because the main, what the BJP did was, its main card was in Meghalaya or Nagaland, say, they said that the states would gain in the same party that rules at the center plays a role in governance in the two states. This is a double-engine argument. Yes, double-engine argument. So, it has, uh, it has basically sidestepped that issue. So, there, is, there are no Muslim minority populations of any significance in either of these two? Uh, hardly. Only, I think, two constituencies in Meghalaya where uh, the BJP's, you know, didn't matter much because the Tindimol Congress and the NPP were in mainly in contest. And what about Tripura? Tripura, 
Tripura has. Tripura, I think that you know the BJP's you know character, you know as a Hindutva party, it it did not play much of a role there. Okay, similar to Nagaland and Meghalaya, would you say? Ah, because it was not raked up also. It was what the you know because it was not a case of anti-Christian or anti-Muslim because the Muslim population is very quite negligible compared to other parts of the northeast, particularly Assam or Bengal. So there are a certain constituency, three or four constituencies where the you know Muslims play a major role. But then there, I think the even uh, the BJP has won a couple of seats in those areas. So, what is the substance of the BJP's appeal in in Tripura? Then here you said in Nagaland and Meghalaya you said it's the double engine argument. In Assam, of course, there is a substantial minority population. So, what is it in Tripura? Tripura is all the same: the double engine, more development, you know, in uh, completion of work that were done, and uh, you know, and the fear that you know, uh, and the playing up on the fear that you know, Tripura will go back to those those days of violence and. Uh, uncertainty during the left front rule right now coming now to nagaland a little closely in nagaland the eastern nagaland people's organization enpo had threatened to boycott the elections uh, before of course uh, coming uh, coming around eventually and and going with the elections now the same coalition that was in power the last 5 years when the enpo was sort of protesting is now back in power and is going to be in power for the other next 5 years so what do you think are the new things because even though the same guys are going to be in power they have going to have to do something new at least that is going to be the expectations in terms of a settlement or a separate state or whatever it is that outfits such as the npo have been demanding so what are the new possibilities that these uh, that the new government will have to consider uh, given that they are back in power uh, if you remember you know this was not the only issue uh, ahead of the elections the, in the buzz in nagaland was around two issues one was the peace process with extremist groups chiefly the nsc and im and the demand for the creation of frontier nagaland comprising six eastern districts nagaland districts uh, which was the demand of the enpo which expands to eastern nagaland people's organization so the peace process eventually did not become an issue when the campaign began probably because nagaland was used to it since the 2033 elections because the peace process began in 1997 so there has been uh, the talks have been on and on and people have you know more or less they have become used to it that the talks are getting delayed and it will keep on getting delayed you know there are so many things uh, so many factors in it and in the case of enpo's boycott over the statehood demand but this was also this has also been in nagaland for since 2010 because this demand started in 2010 so it was lifted the boycott was call was lifted following assurances of equal development and special packages for eastern nagaland um, by the bjp and the ndpp together so these eastern nagaland seats uh, area comprises of uh, you know 20 assembly seats so despite the promises the you know bjp and nagaland uh, ndp ndpp tally of seats from this region was 9 uh, the same as in 2018 while the remaining seats went to smaller parties so this indicates the bjp and ndp will ndpp will have to walk the talk over the next 5 years 
Right. Now, speaking of walking the talk, who's going to hold them accountable here? Because we are looking in at uh, what we're looking at in Nagaland right now is this bizarre situation of an opposition-free polity. I mean, there's no opposition. Everybody's part of the government. Like, what does this mean in terms of demanding and sort of extracting accountability from the government and in terms of governance? Is this sort of going to become a trend of sorts in the Northeast? <laughs> if I if I am if I'm allowed to be frank and brutal, I think, uh, well, accountability and governance were seldom among the qualities of Nagaland governments, you know, even in the past. So the state has been at the bottom of most development indices over the decades, long years. And it is it has been mainly attributed to long years of extremism and associated extortion. So Nagaland has had opposition. This is not the first time that Nagaland has an oppositionless government. It, there have been at least two, two, two cases before. You know, the previous NDPP BGP government was one such uh, case of opposition left government uh, towards the latter half of this term. So accountability and governance should be as good as they were earlier or can improve. You know, especially with Nagaland showing a change of mindset, I think by electing two women as MLAs for the first time, one of whom made history by becoming minister. Right. I mean, if, if going by what you say, if accountability uh, has, has been at such a low level, I mean, the bar has been set low, I, I'm sure I think there is scope for optimism uh, this time around. Yes, yes absolutely. This are, there has been a lot of opposition to women in, uh, you know, as representative, public representatives in, in Nagaland. Okay, okay. Now, coming to Meghalaya, Rahul, now we saw, uh, of course, there's a lot of song and dance or sort of, a, I don't know what, what, what terminology to use it. Like somebody, there are some groups which wanted to support the government. Then it turned out that they were no longer able to do so. Then, you know, everybody wants to support the government. So there was a lot of complex maneuvering going on with the composition of the government in Meghalaya, which finally sort of concluded. Can you talk a little bit about what actually happened? Like two, three MPs, MLAs uh, defected or whatever. And then, you know, before the contrast before the elections when BJP and the uh, ruling party were at loggerheads and now they are back together. What actually was going on? See, it's not two, three MPs. I think there were 18 MLAs who defected to change parties ahead of the elections. But this is uh, <laughs> this is not new to Meghalaya. Meghalaya has since uh, creation, since the cre- it attained uh, statehood in 1972, Meghalaya has never had a clear mandate. That was the only time when Meghalaya had a clear mandate. And because the hills are divided into three regions, you know, tribe-specific regions. One is the Garo, to from where the last two chief ministers have come, Mukul Sangma earlier and Conrad, Conrad Sangma. And then you have the Khasis, you know, who dominate the center of power, that is Shillong. And then the, you have the Jaintia people. So the tendency has always been very fractured. Tendency, you know, all the elections since uh, after 1972 has always been there. And this is also not new. Parties, so all parties uh, want to be in the government in Meghalaya because of regional and very local aspirations. So uh, alliances are cobbled up like that. So this is not also for the first time that, uh, you know, parties, even in the last election, NPP, BJP, no one had any alliance, pre-poll alliance because no, no party goes for any pre-poll alliance. They go always go for post-poll alliance uh, according to the results. And the best formation is, uh, you know, and they, for, uh, and they choose the best formation. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know how it works in the northeast, but but generally speaking, if you're campaigning against a particular party and then uh, you lose, and then you go and join that government, wouldn't it be like some kind of in, in a way a betrayal of the people whom you claim to represent, a betrayal of the mandate, as it were? It should be, but I I don't think this has mattered much in Meghalaya because if the if we go by the past elections and the outcomes and what the permutations and combinations were. So I usually call it uh, Meghalaya elections as is a transition from swearing at to, to swearing in. <laughs> swearing at to swearing in, and then back to swearing at uh, after five years again. I won't be surprised if the same parties, you know, go at each other, you know, in the next election, and then we'll patch up again. Right. Uh, one final question, Rahul, before we uh, wrap up. Now, these three states, uh, they account for five Lok Sabha seats. I think the Northeast as a whole accounts for 25. So this is not a small number. And while the BJP seems to have sort of uh, strengthened its footprint, if not expanded, the Congress seems to have shrunk, drawing a blank in Nagaland. So what do you see as the takeaway from these three elections for the two national parties uh, in the north northeast looking ahead to mizoram and later uh, to the 2024 elections like what what do you think they will draw from this experience uh, these uh, these elections were the first ahead of uh, one year ahead of uh, the 2024 elections the tripura was the first election and followed by nagaland and meghalaya so the election in these three northeastern states particularly tripura were crucial as they were seen as a test cases for the popularity of both the BJP and Congress a year ahead of the 2024 Lok Sabha polls. So Assam, even Assam Chief Minister Himanta Biswa Sharma, the BJP's pointsman for the Northeast, announced soon after the March uh, two results that the BJP and his allies have set a target of winning all 25 Lok Sabha seats from the region comprising eight states. This includes Sikkim. So in 2029, the BJP and its NDA allies won 17 of these seats. The footprint of so, uh, naturally, they have set the bar higher. Uh, but uh, the footprint of the Congress seems to have shrunk. But I, I don't think that, you know, it's, the situation is as bleak as it seems for the Congress. You know, the footprint of Congress seems to have shrunk. But it would be unwise to write off the right of the party completely. You know, you, you should remember the party did uh, manage to win three Lok Sabha seats in Assam in 2019, despite what the BGP called a wave in its favor. Right. And, and what about Mizoram? Do you, do you see any pattern uh, from these three that you think will carry over uh, to the Mizoram election which are due? It should. It should. The similar. I think uh, because in Mizoram, uh, BJP, because like I said, you know, religion doesn't matter much in the other state, northeastern state. But in Mizoram, it really matters much, a lot. Can you can you expand on that a bit? Like in, in how, how do you how do you say that? The Mizo people at large are very particular about the faith. So they do view the BJP suspiciously, and particularly the Hindu agenda. So BJP, have, you know, put in a lot of effort in the last election. So it did not do much except for uh, except for winning one seat in the Chakma Belt, the, mostly the Buddhist people. So I don't think BJP has much of a chance there. But then BJP has uh, the Mizoram National Front as its ally out there. Uh, not an ally, basically a member of the Northeast Democratic Alliance that the Assam Chief Minister is helping. And BJP, because in the in BJP in Mizoram, the contest has always been between the MNF 
or the Congress, because these are the two papers, and there are other regional groups that, that are trying to you know, occupy some spaces. So it would be an interesting election because um, there are a lot of corruption charges against the MNF government. So let's see what happens. Because, and Congress is also not in the in a very good shape in the, in Mizoram. So there is a chance that some other parties might come in. There are regional parties. There are two, three more regional parties. Right. So in Mizoram, you are saying that the BJP uh, may not do very well and the Congress is sort of in a weak position. And uh, it probably will also, it also means that BJP would try and follow the same pattern of campaign in Mizoram as well, sort of play down the in the Tua side of things. Yes. Right. Thank you so much, Rahul. I think that brings us to the end of this episode. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you. Same here. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.